0: Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I've been flying a bunch in the last year, and every time I get on the flight, I'm a little anxious about what happens if they call for a medical volunteer. Not the least of which is most of those emergencies seem to be adults, and I primarily take care of kids. But I'm also always curious about what resources are available on the flight, what my medical, legal, and ethical responsibilities are to those patients, and just what the lay of that land looks like as far as how often it happens and, and what kind of things you have to deal with. I got Dr. TJ Doyle on the phone, who's the Medical Director of the Communication Center at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, and is also the Medical Director of an organization called STATMD, which is a ground-based center that provides support for airlines. And what we're gonna talk about today is, what does it look like on their end whenever an in-flight emergency happens who gets called how does the ground-based center get communicated with what sort of support can they provide to those that are in flight discussion on what sorts of equipment and medications are available and why those choices were made as far as what is available specifically what's not available and then what the legal protections risks and responsibilities are of being a volunteer in a medical capacity on a flight Two things that I do want to note before we get started, because I want to make sure they are heard by everybody. First, up front, TJ states over and over again, the medical volunteers need to know that they are neither alone nor are they in charge, which I really have tried to take to heart when thinking about this. There's always a ground-based expert to talk you through anything that's going to happen in the air. And you are not the final decision maker on what happens with that patient. If they need to divert what the interventions are. You are primarily there to give hands-on technical assistance. So hopefully that removal of responsibility alleviates some of the worries. The second thing to note is we don't talk about it very much in this discussion, but none of the medications that we talk about are available in pediatric forms. There are no chewable tablets. There are no liquid medications. And so keep that in mind when deciding what to pack for your own
1: flight. Hello, my name is TJ Doyle. I am the medical director of the uh, communication center at UPMC, which is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I am also the medical director of STATMD. STATMD is a ground-based service that provides medical support for uh, commercial airliners and some other clients.
0: And I asked TJ to come by and chat with us today about something that really stresses me out every time I fly is what happens if they overhead, is there a doctor on the plane or somebody starts having a medical emergency? And What do I do? What sorts of resources are available? And what's my legal risk, if, if any? So TJ, I'm wondering if you could start out by giving us a, an introduction to how often do these emergencies actually occur and which ones are the most common ones that we might have to deal with?
1: Previous papers have shown it It Usually, it's somewhere like around one in every 644 flights or something like that. And considering how many flights occur during a day, it's actually, it's not uncommon. It's not super common, but it's not uncommon either. And the symptoms that occur or the problems that occur are a little bit variable depending on where you are in the world. In North America, it's primarily uh, syncope or presyncope, then usually followed by oxygenation issues or shortness of breath. And then usually nausea or vomiting, whereas in some other parts of the world, particularly the Middle East where there's super long-haul flights, the symptoms seem to be vomiting, vomiting, vomiting and diarrhea, some more vomiting, <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then syncope, uh, shortness of breath, chest pain, things like that.
0: That sounds like all the chief complaints to my ER right now. Yep. So how often are the the emergencies or the medical needs so severe that the plane actually has to divert? Is that very common?
1: No, it's not common at all. We divert somewhere, I think at this point somewhere between like one and 2% of our, of the flights that consult us. So it's not a common occurrence.
0: Is it more common for an EMS crew or an ambulance crew to actually have to meet the plane when they land or, or it sounds like many of these emergencies are sort of things that people otherwise wouldn't have to call an ambulance for. It's just that you're in the air without many resources.
1: Yeah. I would say most of the time, if we get involved, then usually some type of EMS is arranged uh, for the flight. Usually, even if we're not Super excited about whatever's going on, Uh, the airline often wants that. And so it's just good, you know, patient and customer management, and EMS can meet them, make sure that there's not any discrepancies in whatever the story was and take a look at them, and then, you know, if they need to go to the hospital, they can go to the hospital. So,
0: what what does that ground medical support actually look like from the perspective of the person that's on the plane? So, I'm the physician responding. I, I've got some, um, somebody who needs some sort of intervention. How do they get you on the line, and then what does our interaction look like?
1: Okay. So, there's the ideal situation and then what usually happens. So, um, <laughs> we are contacted either via radio from the, uh, either directly from the aircraft or through the dispatch center. So what will happen often is that something will happen on board, depending on the airline's protocol, they may contact us first, or they may ask for a medical volunteer first. And then sort of in parallel to that, the flight will then contact, usually via a dispatch center, they'll contact us. And so they can either contact us via radio, which is then usually patched into their dispatch center, and then the dispatch center calls us, or uh, if the aircraft has a satellite phone, uh, they can contact us either directly uh, or, again, via the dispatch center where they basically phone in. Sometimes the radio service is, is owned and operated by the airline, and sometimes it's it's a uh, separate company that a bunch of different airlines use. An example is, is one called Inc. So they'll make an Airink patch. Uh, Airink will actually communicate with the flight, and then they will call us or call us through the Airlines Dispatch Center.
0: So just to clarify, it sounds like the majority of the time, the person that's actually the medical volunteer on the flight is not going to be speaking to you
1: directly. That is generally the case. There are some aircraft that do have cabin headsets. However, our experience has been is that these often do not work. I think the issue is is that they're just not used very often, and so it becomes a, sort of an in-service every time somebody pulls one out because they just usually are sitting there on the aircraft. and actually, our recommendation is is that we usually recommend not to put the volunteer on the headset for two reasons. Number one is the volunteer is the one that's you know actually helping the ill or injured passenger, and then number two, the volunteer has never seen the headset before and has no idea how it works, whereas theoretically the flight attendant has had some kind of recurrent training on it. Um, The airlines usually have some type of form. Usually now it's paper. Some are in the stages of moving towards sort of electronic version of it. What we say is to have somebody fill out the form, usually the flight attendant, because again, the volunteer is actually, you know, assisting and um, fill out the form. And then either if they can get the headset to work, you know, just read the form to us or, otherwise pass the form up to the cockpit most of the cockpits are secure so they usually have to like slide it under or something like that and then we get the information relayed from from one of the pilots
0: coming off of that let's say I'm the medical volunteer on a flight and and they end up contacting your service who has sort of final decision making let's say there's an actual emergency and there's some question about what service to provide or what medication to give or what intervention to have I'm assuming that that once the ground medical support has has been involved that they they are kind of the final final um, medical decision-maker?
1: The actual decision-makers are the captain, of the aircraft and the dispatcher. They are the ones that have operational control. Everyone else is offering advice. So um, when they contact us, what we do is we offer advice and the flight can, e- the captain can either take our advice or not take our advice. <laughs> um, so from the volunteer standpoint, the what you know, the airlines contract with us. So generally airline policy is, is to say, Hey, you know, these are the people Uh, that we've contracted to perform the service. So we should listen to their recommendation. The thing I like to say about the volunteers is, is two things is number one, you're not alone. So you're not doing this by yourself, particularly like in the US, everybody has a ground-based medical support service that they use. And number two, you're not in charge. (laughs) So That's going to be
0: real hard for me to wrap
1: my brain around, right? I'm a a ER doc. I like to have
0: my my hands on the wheel.
1: It is difficult. Uh, (laughs) It can be difficult sometimes, particularly when there's discordance in the recommendations.
0: Sure. Sure, sure. Can you go over maybe what sorts of equipment and medications are actually available on a flight? I I've only ever had to respond to one and it didn't need anything. It was a panic attack. So I've not seen the medical kit or or where it's stored or even what kind of things might be available.
1: In the US particularly, there's there's what's called a basic kit. And that's an this is a kit that's mandated by the FAA and if uh if your aircraft has more than 50 seats, uh, you have to have an AE, an automated external defibrillator and you have to have this basic emergency medical kit. And it is a basic emergency medical kit. It's basically like 1989's ACLS <laughs> medications that have put in there. Unfortunately, in order to change the particular those contents um, literally takes an act of Congress because it's it's a it's a law. So either the FAA has to send out a new regulation, or Congress has to like pass a law ordering the FAA to do that. So it is extremely difficult to change or subtract the medications uh, that are in the kit. And the basic medications are there's there's aspirin, there's usually a non-aspirin pain reliever, usually acetaminophen. There's an albuterol inhaler. There's nitroglycerin. There's Benadryl tablets, there's injectable Benadryl, there's a one to 1,000 epinephrine and usually in a little vial. Some airlines carry EpiPens, but it's they're not required to carry the EpiPens, they have to carry the Epinephrine, so some of them just carry it in a little vial. And then you have the one to 10,000 epinephrine for cardiac arrest, you have atropine, <laughs>
0: You have <laughs> that litigating. was the medication that surprised me the most yep. like atropine is on the required list but yes. things like glucose gel and a glucometer are not
1: correct uh dextrose is d50 uh is required and then um that's pretty much the rundown of the medications and then they're also they need to have a usually a 500cc bag of saline and an IV start kit and a couple different size IV catheters. So that's pretty much it for the basic kit. So again, the airlines cannot change the contents of the basic kit. They can't remove anything from that kit. Um, What they can do is they can add to the kit. Some airlines have added uh, certain uh, additional medications to the kit. And uh, in the U.S., again, the, the kit's usually not much more than that. And they'll have, and the thing about the, the, the emergency medical kit, or they'll call it the EMK. That's what they called an MEL item. So it's required. It's just like the engines. It has to be on the aircraft. So if it gets, if it gets used, it has to be um, replaced. Like they can't. Take off without it. So a bunch of airlines also have is what they'll call like a flight attendant pouch or a flight attendant kit that'll have things like antacid tablets, some Tylenol, maybe some some uh, Benadryl, maybe some ibuprofen, things like that. A couple different things. And the advantage to that is is they if is if they use that flight attendant pouch or whatever, then that's not cracking the seals on the emergency medical kit, and that kit could stay in service. One of the Medications that we push for is uh, Zofran or Ondansetron because nausea and vomiting events are pretty common. Right. And what we we recommend is, is that they use the oral dissolving tablet formula because that way, even if they're still vomiting, you can at least put it under their tongue and then hopefully uh, get something from that. And also they carry oxygen. But the thing about the oxygen to remember is, is that it's technically not really for the passengers. It's kind of been adapted for that by the airlines. The bottled oxygen that they have on board is, is really what they call walk around bottles for the flight attendants in that if there was a cabin depressurization and all the oxygen masks came down, the flight attendants could then use that oxygen bottle to walk around the aircraft and do their safety functions. What sort of happened over time is that that oxygen becomes available for use to the passengers. And they actually, they use it pretty quickly. It's kind of like, you know, if everything's, if all you have is a hammer, <laughs> everything's a nail. So pretty <laughs> much, um, most, uh, a lot of, Uh, in-flight medical events, the passenger will end up on oxygen, whether they need to or not, which is fine because it doesn't hurt them. Um, The other thing to remember though, is that they have high flow and low flow, but high flow is only four liters a minute and low flow is two liters a minute. So their definition of high flow and like EMS or emergency department's definition of high flow are completely different. Yeah. That's not a
0: lot of options as far as settings and how much to deliver. That's all you Um, got. um, I want to come back to oxygen in one second, but back on the the meds and the equipment is what airlines have added uh, in addition to the basic kit. Is that something that is like publicly available information? Can I look at a flight ahead of time and know?
1: Probably not. The airlines kind of they keep this kind of stuff close to the vest for some reason. Okay, um, fair enough. I you know what that probably
0: makes sense. If I could make one change, it I think it would be Zofran. Um, yes, that might be that might be the pediatrician in me talking.
1: No, no, I every. <laughs> Every airline I meet, I'm on like year five of the Zofran preaching. I'm trying. (laughs) But the other issue too is it depends on the airline. It's whoever holds like the contract for the kit. So if it's like the maintenance people, they don't, you know, they're like, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) We're not interested in doing that, you know. Particularly in the US, the the medical departments of the of the airlines have been Um, shrunk over time. And some of them actually never had one. So that's one of my challenges is is something like that, you know, to go in and say, Hey, I think, I think this would be a helpful medication. I've, I've given them data on like, this is how many people are vomiting and this is how many diversions you had because of that. But you have to go through the right silo to get to the right department, to get to the right, right, you know, bureaucrat basically, you know, it's not like a hospital where you can be like, you know, this is what we need to do. And everyone says, Oh, that makes medical sense and then, you know, it gets done. So these, because these aren't, this isn't a medical operation. It's an air transport operation.
0: So back on the oxygen, what rough, sort of altitude is the cabin pressurized to? I'm thinking how often does that cause problems for somebody coming from sea level who might have some chronic lung disease that doesn't need oxygen normally, but then has troubles once they're in the air?
1: The cabins are usually pressurized to an altitude, cabin altitude is between six and 8,000 feet. So what that means is the aircraft is at 38,000 feet. You know, the cabin pressure might be at 7,000 feet. The aircraft has the limited ability to get that pressure you know to a lower sea level equivalent, but most commercial jets aren't going to be able to get down to like you know zero or, or right. sea level. Uh, in order to do that that throws in a whole bunch of aviation and operational issues like you know can't is air traffic control going to let them do that? Is there worse weather you know or is there horrible turbulence at that altitude? What's that going to do to their fuel burn? It's not necessarily a simple solution. So
0: I think the other big question that I always have that makes me worry about this is what's the legal and maybe ethical ramifications of being a medical volunteer on the plane? If you respond, do you have any sort of legal liability and are there any cases where anybody's been sued for something that went wrong while they were a medical volunteer?
1: That's a two-part answer. So there are actually... In the, and it actually varies from, it can be a little bit varied around the world. Let's use the U.S., for example. So in the U.S., there is, there is what they call a good Samaritan law. It's two parts. You know, there's a volunteer part and an airline part. So if, From the volunteer part, so if you're a volunteer and you're trying to do the right thing and you're not doing anything completely egregious or way outside any type of standard of medical care, you are then covered under this law that says, you know, you are not medically liable for that. And then from the airline side, it's basically, as long as the airline believes that you are who you say you are, then the airline's not really liable either.
0: Yeah, so do you have to provide some sort of identification or is is you stating?
1: It's recommended. It used to people would always have, uh, if they were physicians, they'd have their you know state license in their wallet or things like that. Um, a bunch of states have kind of gotten away from that and now it's all online. That policy varies by airline. Some of them, they won't let you near the kit or anything like that unless you can provide a, a medical license. Others are um, a little bit more flexible. And there's been a couple incidents in the past where people were didn't have identification and then were kind of like Pushed aside by the by the cabin crew, and then got all irritated about that, and it became like yeah. a new story and things like
0: that. Uh, I've seen I've seen a couple of so, uh, social media posts yep. that went really popular yep. based on that. So so
1: that one of those caused an airline to sort of change how they do things. As far as being sued, what what can happen is usually if if somebody is going to get sued, it's going to be the airline, and then they try to they'll sue the airline and they may throw in other people or other parties to the suit. I believe there was one case where a medical volunteer were kind of like wrapped up in that, but was then dismissed. The other thing that will happen is it's not universal, but a lot of times if you do volunteer, the airline will basically indemnify you. and Some of them actually provide you like a little documentation of that, that basically say if something happens and you know there's, there's a, a legal issue, then the airline will... Will defend you. It's always theoretical, you know. In actuality, I know of no physician that's been successfully sued. One interesting area is, and again, we've we haven't seen any case law on it. There's the question of so let's say you volunteer and um, the airline says, "Oh, thank you very much," and then the airline gives you something, or specifically if you ask for something from from the airline, you know, if you say, "Hey, I helped out now, I want a business class seat," or "I helped out now, I want seventy five thousand miles." Or whatever, then the, it's a, it's a question that we don't have an answer to because it hasn't really been tested. But does that then take you out of the good Samaritan situation because now there's been some type of transaction? I had not
0: even thought about that because that you know, if if I helped and the airline said they want to give me something for free, I probably wouldn't turn them down. Right. I, I don't know that I you would. that. if the airline out, offers
1: but, that to you, is like, hey, thank you. You know, that's I, I don't think that's and you didn't seek it out. I think that's probably reasonable.
0: Now, you mentioned that some of the legal protections as far as like the Good Samaritan law might vary depending on what country you're in. Something that I had not thought about till I started reading some of the uh, PrEP articles is that some countries have a, a mandate to respond where if you are – qualified and they ask for a volunteer, you are expected to respond. And yep. How do you navigate needing to know what sort of legal protections you have, but also whether you're required or not to to respond?
1: It's very interesting and it's and I think it's very murky because I think it's if you're a citizen of that country, you know, because if you're in transit over that country and you, let's say you live in Pennsylvania, you know, does that law apply to you or does that law only apply to you if you're a citizen of that country? It's a little bit murky to me. The other question is, is like, what's the jurisdiction? You no, know, you're at 38,000 feet somewhere over Europe. You know, whose, whose jurisdiction is that, you know, uh, or, right. or you're over the Pacific Ocean somewhere, you know, you're between... Uh, uh, Hawaii and Australia. I think you can go down a, a bit of a, a medical legal sort of like rabbit hole on these and some of these things. And I can't I can't give you concrete legal answer.
0: Any other common mistakes or issues or, or things that people do before they call you that you wish they wouldn't?
1: The the main thing is not having information because if you call us and you don't have any information, then it becomes a game of telephone um, because of the the inherent limitations in the modes of communication. So if the flight calls me and they have all the information and they can deliver to me in a package, reading off the the, the list, and we tell the pilots like read it like a checklist because that's what they do. I can give you a decision in like thirty seconds on what I think is what you need to do and what I if I have no information like if I have the flight attendant on the headset going hello hello then the whole thing can stretch out to like twenty minutes which sure you know, which nobody wants. I think the other key thing to remember is that if it's if it's an in flight event the aircraft is at 38,000 feet. So even if you do need to divert, and even if you do need to divert right now, it's going to take a half an hour to get anywhere because you just have to get down from altitude. So, So there's usually time to kind of figure out what the situation is and time to do an intervention.
0: Oh, I did. I had one question. Can you give a passenger their own medications and or somebody else on the plane's medication?
1: That's an interesting topic. So Usually, I mean, if it's the passenger's own medication, then usually what we'll recommend is if the passenger has the ability to take it, they can take it. Because then the passenger's basically you know, taking their own prescribed medication. Right. When you start getting into sort of like transactional events where somebody's having back pain and then the guy three rows ahead of them has some Vicodin and you know, I usually extract myself from that. I'm <laughs> like, I'm not gonna recommend that. If there wants to be sort of some sort of in-flight transactional occurrence, I have nothing to do with that.
0: And we're gonna wrap it up there. I'm gonna link to all of the articles and resources that we talked about. In particular, I will have the list of things that are available in-flight on most flights, as well as the protocols that TJ and his team have put together to deal with the most common in-flight emergencies. We didn't dig into the medical treatment of most of these things today because that's an entire separate discussion. I want to thank Dr. Doyle for his time today and all of you for listening. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really does help others to find this podcast.